The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Hey, folks, and welcome to Typology, the show in which we explore the mystery of the human personality through the lens of the Enneagram. My name is Anthony Skinner. I am the producer of the show, and we are so excited to have you join us today. We have a fantastic guest. He is a close personal friend of Typology, Al Andrews. You're going to love Al. Al is a counselor, author, and speaker, and he really is an integral part of the musical world here in Nashville. He's the founder of Porter's Call. Now, the mission of Porter's Call is to be a service of counsel, support, and encouragement to recording artists and their families, and to provide a safe and confidential refuge for artists to deal with the issues they face at no charge at no charge. Since the beginning of 2001, more than 1,000 artists from all different genres have walked through Al's door. Al is an Enneagram 2, and we are so happy to have him on the show today. Hey, that's it for me, Anthony Skinner. I'm so excited you're going to get to meet our good friend, Al Andrews. And now, without any further ado, here is the host of our show, Ian Cron. Al Andrews, my good friend, welcome to Typology. Hey, it's great to be here. Brother, you, you have one of the coolest jobs in Nashville. Well, thank you. And I probably don't go a week without someone telling me that, that this is not an exaggeration, Al Andrews saved my life. Mm. Well, that's a really kind thing to say thanks. Yeah, uh, it's, not, uh, it's not an overstatement. In fact, we had a guest uh, in here recently who, who said that to us. I've had... We have lots of mutual friends. Mm -hmm. uh, we know mm -hmm. um, lots of people in the music sphere, and I can't tell you how many have have said to me at some point or another, oh, that Al Andrews. I went through this period of my life, and it was horrible, and Al Andrews put me back together. And it's a, <laughs> it's a, you have a remarkable legacy here in town. But So take a minute and just tell people what it is that, that you do. Sure. I am the director of this thing called Porter's Call. It started about 18 years ago while there's a lot of people. That's why there's a lot of people that maybe say some things. And basically it's a service of counsel, support, and encouragement to recording artists. And we offer it for free. So anybody in town who's a recording artist and needs someone to talk to and needs some help walking through things can come to Porter's Call. And over the years, we've grown now, so it's not just me people are talking about, but I have two other folks on staff and an office manager, and we have a little place in Franklin, and the name comes from an old 15th century monastery, 5th century monastery, mm. where the porter was the person in the monastery who, when a sojourner knocked on the door, they'd call out, thanks be to God. The porter's call. And they'd welcome them in and help them find the way to what they need. Mm. And so we thought, instead of being therapists, let's be porters. Mm. And when people walk in or knock on the door, 
we help them find the way to what they need. If it's um, talking about their past, we can do that. If it's helping them with their marriage, we can do that. If it's somebody that's depressed, we can work with that, and we can refer people if we can't help them. But it's just a place to come to find your way. Mm. What better job for an Enneagram 2? <laughs> it's perfect, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> I can help. <laughs> but, you know, again, it's like how beautiful when you leverage your superpower. Mm. Yeah. Mm to do something wonderful in the world, right? Indeed, yes. So in your understanding of Enneagram 2s, if someone said to you, describe what one is, tell, tell from your perspective as a 2, what is a 2? Well, the, the main word that comes to me is someone that wants to be of help. And in the um, more unhealthy part of it it's someone who needs to be of help Mm. and must be of help and in the healthy part it's someone who's available to be of help so that would be my core understanding of it too and i'm sure that uh, you can help me out with that to expand my vision of it too no you actually just really helped me okay you just articulated something. Of so course, I helped you. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. But no. But you said it so concisely. I love what you just said. That that you know, um, I my understanding of a two is it's someone who wants to be of help. An unhealthy two is someone who needs to be of help. Yeah. And a healthy two is one who is available to help. Yeah. Well, let's just close in prayer and call it a day. Okay. Yeah, Amen. For real. <laughs> that pretty much. I mean, I just yes. think, you know, that pretty much covers the territory. Hmm. You you came in and you were about to tell me a story. You said, because I said to you, I said, hey, man, what do you want to talk about today? He says, well, I was on a hike this morning and I, I remembered a story uh, that was quintessential to material. And I said, well, hold on, let's let's wait till we get on the Okay. Yes. So I want to hear this story. In fact, I was telling Nita, my wife, uh, earlier, I said, I just remembered this. So it would have, it would have been about 40 years ago when I was 25. And I was one of my favorite all-time movies is the original Miracle Worker. Mm. Uh with Patty Duke and who else? I can't remember the name. Anyway, and I and back in those days, um if something came on TV, you had to watch it because there was no taping of it or anything like that. And I saw that the miracle worker was coming on TV and I just couldn't wait. Cause it has my favorite scene of all time in it where Helen Keller realizes what language is when she's one and a half and she says the word water. And it's mm-hmm. just the most beautiful scene in any movie. So you got to watch the original if you haven't seen it in a while. But anyway, I was I was watching this uh, movie on TV, and there were commercials and everything, and the scene was coming up, right? The classic scene was coming up, and the phone rang, and of course I answered it, you know, because it's very responsible and perhaps helpful <laughs> to answer the phone, and someone um, was just calling that I hadn't talked to in a long time to check in. And I had this dilemma of do mm. I 
watched the show that I've been waiting for for weeks or do I say to this person, I didn't even think about saying, can I call you back in a half hour? Mm. So I stayed on the phone um, because probably because I I didn't want to disappoint the person or I didn't. I'm not sure why you can ask me, but but I stayed on the phone and internally I raged. Mm. Wow. (laughs) I was just mad at this person and they didn't do anything wrong. But I felt so responsible to have the conversation or to not say or disappoint them or something like that, that I stayed on the phone and I missed it. I missed the scene in the movie. And thinking back, I was going, oh, my gosh, I was so too. (laughs) (laughs) I guess that's what you are. But I was so unaware of my life at that point in time Mm. and unaware of motivations and unaware Mm. of things. And so there I was, uh, like today, one, I probably wouldn't answer the phone and would just call it back, call the person back and continue watching what I was watching or doing what I was doing. But at that time, there wasn't an option not to answer the phone. Um, And once I answered the phone, I was there Mm. and would not, could not pull myself away, which looking back, I go, oh my gosh, that was crazy. But um, it was real to me at that moment. And and looking back at the dilemma, one, I'm glad to know I've grown a bit, but, but thinking about it today, I was going, wow, I was really um, entrenched in an unhealthy a part of being a two mm. at that point. Yeah, that's a big theme for twos, which is uh, a sense of panic, actually. Mm-hmm. Maybe the word I would say. It, it, a sense of panic surfaces when their own needs collides with the needs of somebody else. Ah, that's a good way to put it. Because that, that's more succinct than to watch ha- what happened. My need was to watch this movie. Their need was to catch up and my need would be subservient to theirs. Right. And then you panic in the beginning, like, what am I going to do? Yes. Right? Then you do what Tiggers do. Yeah. (laughs) Which is meet the needs of, to to sublimate your own needs unnecessarily. Yes. To that of the person on the other end of the call. Yes. Which then turns into resentment. Yes. It's amazing. Right? Yeah. Uh, Which they would never pick up. No, 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 no. That you were resentful. Oh, no. It would, no. <laughs> I was really good. <laughs> no, they, they wouldn't. Um, yeah, they wouldn't. You, they would only pick up the bless your heart? Yeah, bless your heart. <laughs> or they might uh, seem, they might finally pick up. He certainly is being a little quiet. <laughs> he but, seems distant. Yeah. But no, they wouldn't have picked up on the resentment. And yeah, thinking back on it, I'm going, oh, my, I'm resentful for something that I did. Mm-hmm. Resemble mm. to someone else for something that I did. Mm. Mm. You're a great therapist, a great spiritual director. Um, you, in my experience, incarnate the best of two wisdom. 
But my hunch is, as you've said, you, you've been through a season or you began in another place, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and you can only become wise with time and experience and uh, awareness. Mm-hmm. So I guess a question I have for you is looking back over your career and, you know, that's considerable amount of time. What, what makes a truly great helper? Wow. You know, I think I'm sure there are a number of answers to that, and I'll start with one that comes to mind. Um, I think a truly great helper knows that they're a part of the process, Mm. but not the whole process. Mm. Um, Knows that they're not the only one that's going to help with this person. Um, And I... I don't think that's always been my stance. Mm. Uh, Earlier on in my counseling career, um, I would have felt that I was absolutely necessary to this process Mm. and that if someone was going to be helped, it was going to be me, which is both arrogant and um, not accurate. But over time, I think to be of help, means to know that I'm a part of it. I think early on, one of my mentors realized that when people left my office and we would do supervision, I would, I would take it home with me. Mm. I would, I would feel it. I would, it would, it would bear a huge weight on me. And he really helped me once when he said, Al, people are very resilient and often the people that you're helping have been dealing with this thing for 15, 20, 30 years. They'll make it till next week. Mm. It was, it was really helpful, um, both to kind of, uh, redirect me and, and my thinking and to understand that I play a part but somebody's own journey also plays a part, and other people play a part. And I, I think there was a time where one time I'd been working with somebody and, and the, for a long time, and they saw a bumper sticker, and it kind of changed their life. Right. <laughs> and it, it, it kind of helped me be aware that there are other things involved and other people involved. Um, but also just an understanding that God is at work, and I'm not the final answer here holy smokes that that is like pure two wisdom because what you're describing there i think as i hear is the move from pride to humility Mm -hmm. right so pride the deadly sin of the two which is the belief that i'm indispensable Mm -hmm. that um this person this group will not be able to function get better progress whatever without me right right yeah and the pride piece there is the myth of indispensability mm-hmm. as well as uh, this belief that i have all the time treasure talent resources to m- make it happen for this other person to make yeah. them well when, when in fact i don't have all the time treasure talent resources time in the world to to help another person for a two to say i'm just a part 
of the journey of helping and healing in another mm-hmm. person's life, just a part. I just mm-hmm. play a part. That is, that is to me, an indication of tremendous health. It's been a long time coming, Ian. <laughs> it really has been. Okay. So can you tell me? Yeah. You, you say that with such gravity. I want to know what that well, means. Well, you know, in, uh, again, if I go back to my 20s and early 30s, um, I, I just spent my time looking around of where I could be of help. Mm. And I wish I could say that was noble. Um, in some cases, I think it might have been. But um, I was just the most helpful friend you could ever have. Mm. I would show up. If you needed me to show up, I'd help move you, even if my back was hurting. Mm. I would just, I would just, my my radar would be out um, to help people. And... Um, what I think was going on in a lot of those situations was um, it fed me knowing that they would think uh, well of me and they would perhaps like me more if I'm, yeah, they would perhaps like me more or think well of me if I did that. And mm. I would keep my reputation of being a super helper up. Mm. Um so, and I, and I did that to my own, um, I, I lost in that situation because I was not attendant at all to my own needs because others' needs were in front of mine. And again, in my heart, that was not a noble thing, mm-hmm. but it was a necessary thing. Mm-hmm. But But I didn't think about my own needs. Mm-hmm. It would be like, let me survey the room and find out what other people need. Mm. Yeah, we often say that when a two walks into the room, their attention immediately migrates toward a person, usually. Mm-hmm. And the question that the two is carrying in their, or the questions the two is carrying in their mind is, what do you want? What are you feeling? What do you need? How can I meet it? <laughs> <laughs> well, there's that. <laughs> But, you know, here's the deal. That's your, your superpower is attunement. Mm-hmm. It's emotional attunement. Mm-hmm. And you have this uncanny intuition when you're around people. You know, uh, I, could say, I could say to somebody, how are you doing, really? And they go, yeah, I'm doing fine. When a two says to me, how are you doing, really? I just start crying. Because <laughs> they, they've got like some kind of a window into yeah. my soul, man. And it's like, they, <laughs> see, see, you're letting out the secret. I'm really not that great a therapist. I'm just a two. And people start crying and feel like I did something. <laughs> well, I will say this. I did have someone say to me once, uh, and this is a true story about you. An artist um, said... I went to Al, and I was describing some hellish experience uh, uh, from growing up. Mm -hmm. And Al started crying. And I realized that he was crying for me, tears that I couldn't myself Mm -hmm. make contact or generate. And there was Al actually having my tears uh, with me, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. Wow. Which is really quite beautiful, isn't it? As you said, it it really moves me. Yeah. 
The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastic into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at HeftyRenew.com. That's pretty profound, right? So when did it all change? I mean, you, you said, okay, well, you know, boy, there's a lot of years here. Can you, like, what changed and when for you? That's a really great question. Um, I think the beginning of change came when I went to therapy, hmm. probably in my early 30s. And um, I was just exhausted. Hmm. And just, you know, I was afraid of relationships, and but I'd never ask for help. Mm-hmm. And things weren't working in my life, and I was going through a depression and it was just finally I just I began to ask for help Mm. and that was the beginning of it was just saying I need somebody to help me Mm. and that was when that was the start of the shift I think the shift from uh, sort of occupying that sort of unhealthy two space Mm mm-hmm toward um, getting in touch with your own needs and desires and wants? Yes. Is that what I'm... Yes. I I, um, I grew up in a lovely family mm-hmm. with um, parents who loved my sister and me, comma. Um, one of the things was that in, in our family, there was one primary ex- acceptable emotion, and that was happy. Mm. and we're going to be happy, and we were. But what that means is if sad things happened, I would just, um, metaphorically, we'd break into song, the sun will come up tomorrow. We wouldn't, but metaphorically. Right. You know, it's it's like um, if if our dog died, we'd get another dog. Mm-hmm. pretty quickly mm-hmm. and and so uh therefore that translated for me into i really am not going to bring up my needs i'm really not going to bring up the things that are going on inside of me that may make everybody uncomfortable mm-hmm. that may pull away from the happy so i just kind of push those down mm-hmm um, and at a certain point, uh, sort of like a, a volcano, you could just tell the mountain was bulging. And um, that's what really caused me to seek help because mm. the the scaffolding was just beginning to break down. Mm. Um, and so beginning to express a need was the start of it and then over the years you know it's funny i was it it, the unhealthy part of it too is still something i struggle with Mm -hmm. i I told nita even yesterday i said now 
Ian invited me to do this, and it's a really busy time. And if I say yes, it's because I wanted to be helpful or not wanting to disappoint him or because I think I have something to say. And I came up with the last one, you know, right. <laughs> that or that you could evoke it from me. But it, so it's still there. It's still a, I still feel the magnetism of that right. unhealthy. And I guess that's how life is. But yeah, but it still pulls on me. Well, these are deeply embedded patterns. Oh, yeah. You know, because yeah. I think part of it is just fixed straight stuff. Right. It's not it's it's this is part of like in the marrow. Oh, material, yeah. Like really born is. with it. Then there's the uh, the added layer of what we get pick pick up growing up in our families, like yeah. you, like you've just described that <clears throat> feed into the formation of a of a particular type of, yeah. of personality style. Um, I don't think I'm ever going to break loose of all of the um, the errant beliefs and crazy story that goes along with being a four, you know. Yeah. But I can, and I think we all can, learn to have enough awareness, as you just described, mm-hmm. to be able to stop and say, now, why am I doing this again? Mm-hmm. Uh, am I on autopilot when I say yes to this? Mm-hmm. Or yeah. am I sort of actually doing this for the right reasons at the right time? Mm-hmm. You know. And of course, there's always times when it's like, well, it could be both. Who knows? Yeah, I'm just going to exactly. run with this, you know? Yeah. Um, it's too hard to know for sure, right? But, you know, we try and do the math in our heads and, and hopefully run with the right answer. Yeah. You know, if we could bat 300, I feel pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah, actually, I do. I find myself more these days um, asking the question of why am I doing this or is this necessary? Mm-hmm. Um, is this being helpful because I really want to be helpful and I think there's something I can give in this situation? Or am I trying to do something like make this person like me? Mm-hmm. I mean, I still, I find myself more and more these days, maybe it's because in the past few years uh, with um, studying a little bit of the Enneagram and my wife, is studying it as well and we talk about it a little bit more together because we're a two and a five together and Mm -hmm. therefore it helps us to talk about it but i've found myself asking the question more Hmm. instead of just diving into things you know there's a question that has really um, intrigued me for a while now and i think it's a question that all types could could ask um in these moments and these sort of gap moments where we're wondering about m- m- what we should do. Mm-hmm. Right. And the question is, you know, just to pause and say, what does love require of me right now? That's a great question. That's a great question. Does love require me to say no? Does love require me to say yes, even though I want to say no or vice versa? Mm-hmm. You know, does it require me to be quiet? Does it require mm-hmm. me to say something? Does mm-hmm. Just to me, that question haunts me a lot. You That's know? a great question to evaluate uh, your motives and what you're doing or mm-hmm. your actions. It yeah. is a wonderful question. So the superpower of the two, this attunement to the needs of other people, 
the ability to anticipate needs, which is mm -hmm. fairly amazing. But when unhealthy, the unspoken expectation that someone else will meet our needs for us um, without our even having to acknowledge we have any. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Is that your experience as a two? Did you have, unex like, for example, can you tell when you have strings attached to your giving to another person when it's not altruistic? Yes, I think I can. Uh, how do you know? Um, because, you know, if there, um, I would say there's a inner conniver. Um, <laughs> and ho hopefully I can catch it in time. But I, but I think they're probably, uh, it just... You just know when you're when you're not right, you know. <laughs> you just know, right? Yeah, yeah. So I like what you just said, in, the inner conniver. <laughs> because here's the thing that people. So I think people have a stereotype of every type, right? Mm -hmm. You know, every four wears a beret and smokes clove cigarettes and reads French poetry, <laughs> <laughs> right? Sure. You know, and um, every uh, eight is, um, you know, a elbow throwing, bar brawling, you know. You know what I'm saying? Like, mm -hmm. like these are stereotypes right. of of people, and I yeah. think some people have this two stereotype of like the hugger, mm -hmm. the kid. You know what I mean? Like yeah. the, always the mom with the casserole showing up. You know, yeah. and that, to me, that's a little bit of a stereotype. I mean, I get it, but it's a little bit of a distorted picture, right? Mm -hmm. And one of the things, and every every type's got its dark side. So let's just visit the dark side of two here for a second, sure. because, um, and and yeah, so. There is a conniving dimension to the unhealthy, too. Mm -hmm. The twos can be very ambitious. Mm -hmm. They can be very manipulative. Mm -hmm. um, they can be deceptive. They can use people in order to get ahead, all the while looking like amazingly loving human beings. What can I say? <laughs> <laughs> uh, now, again, uh, you know, I'm yeah, not here to be, I'm not beating up on twos and twos. You are the number. No, no. The, I mean, I, there's a, there's a shadow side. Right? Yeah. But it's hard for people to see it because it's usually so well masked yeah. behind this loving, like I'm doing it all for you. Right. I'm doing all this for you. Yeah. Sort of a thing. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. That's the good part. Um, we can hide. <laughs> you know, I, I also, for me, the and I don't exactly know how this fits, but the shadow side would be um, uh, perfectionism hmm. and the need not to fail. Oh, tell me about that because those are two things I haven't really thought much about. Well, that that might just be another part of my personality. Maybe who <laughs> but, knows? But let's go there. But but I think. Um, a part of the unhealthy, too, would be doing things for you so that you will like me. Mm -hmm. And so you will think good of me. And in the same way, if I do well, if I perform well, you will like me. Mm -hmm. And so, um, so perfectionism in doing things whether it's an event whether it's a talk whether it's whatever um 
if I don't do well, I really have to grapple with it. Mm. I have to just grapple with the reality of people fail. Mm -hmm. But I'm not supposed to. Right. But people fail. And if they fail, it doesn't mean that people aren't going to like you. Maybe they may be disappointed, but the pressure not to fail and the pressure to perform well, whether that's in helping or doing, um, is very strong mm. and very strong. Yeah. Do you, do you think that has, I mean, twos, threes and fours are in the shame triad, mm-hmm. you know? And so, I mean, what I hear you saying is, is that, uh, shame is really right there for you. Oh yeah. Like, yeah. um, the letting, the disappointing other people, the shame mm-hmm. of not, yeah, um, performing well enough. I mean, is that mm-hmm. is shame yeah. been a major theme oh, in yeah. your life? It's, as a it's, two? it's it's a battle. Has been more of in the past, but it still brings this little ugly head up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so instead of, you know, if I fail, instead of going, okay. That was disappointing. There's something I can learn from that. There's something I can grow from that. My first response is shame. Mm-hmm. It's the first place I go and yeah. I have to dig out of that hole. And I can usually find my way out, but it takes a little while. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Boy, shame is something, isn't it? Oh, my. I, I, you know, we have our mutual friend, Becca Stevens, who was mm-hmm. on the podcast recently. She, What's her favorite line? It's like, love is the most... A powerful force in the universe is that mm-hmm. is that her thing? Mm-hmm. And I always say to her, I go, yeah, but but shame is right behind. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it, yes, a, a close second, <laughs> right? Yeah, it's yeah. amazing. Yeah. So, in your work as a therapist, um, what theme, what theme of brokenness do you see as running? Uh, that you have seen more often than other themes. You know what I mean? Like, is there a theme of brokenness that runs through the human soul that you've, that you've seen and go, man, there it is again. You know, um, my first thought is the refusal to sorrow, Hmm. the refusal to face sorrow. Hmm. It feels like that is a constant theme. Oh, you got to tell me more about, I'm a four, so please keep going. Okay. (laughs) Speaking your language. So, so years ago I taught a course, uh, psychopathology when I was teaching at Colorado Christian university and the theme of my course. And I don't know where I got this theme, whether I stole it, whether I made it up. Let's just say I made it up. Um, cause that's better, you know, um, was the flight from sorrow leads to the loss of hope. Say that again. The flight from sorrow, running from sorrow, running away from sorrow, leads to the loss of hope. Mm. And it was so interesting because one week I would teach on dissociative disorders. They used to be called multiple personalities. Mm -hmm. One week I would teach on depression. One week I would teach on eating disorders and on and on and on for the whole semester. And every class began with that sentence, 
the flight from sorrow leads to the loss of hope. And it fit for every situation. Mm. Um, whether it's depression, if it's non-chemical, whether it's anxiety, whether it's something really tragic that a person won't face, um, a lot of the issues come down to the fact that someone will not embrace sorrow. Hmm. And so in terms of a theme, that's what I see a lot. And that's where I, I go a lot with people is let's find that situation, that that story, let's, that moment that happened, and everyone has them, that we don't want to deal with or we don't want to talk about or we haven't admitted and grieve it. Mm -hmm. And I can't tell you the number of times people have said to me, and I'm sure you've heard this as well, why do we have to go there? That's done. It's over. It's past. I've moved beyond it. Why do we have to go there? And I usually have to give them the bad news because um, if you don't, you won't be healed. I go, well, what do you mean? And then I pull out the big guns and bring Jesus into it. <laughs> and said, well, Jesus said the following. Blessed are those who mourn. Why? For they will be comforted. And my assumption, if you don't mourn, you will not be. So I think there are a lot of people walking around out there that are not comforted because they've never mourned. Mm. So that's the first theme that comes to me. You know, before we uh, hit record, one of the things I said, you know, and, you know, I was actually on the way over here thinking, we first met in 1993, four, is that right, in Colorado? Yeah. Actually, what I remember was a friend brought you in after you wrote uh, Chasing Francis, brought okay. you to town. Um, and had dinner with a group of people and invited me to it. I think I have an earlier date. Well. It was at CCU. Okay. I was playing music, and there was a small gathering. And I think Mike Cusick may have been involved in this. Wow. Is this pot? I think so. And um, I had written a bunch of songs. I was in town. I was studying at Denver Seminary at the time. You were at CCU. Mm -hmm. Is that around that time? I was there from 90 to 97. So it would have been around that time. Yeah. So I hate to bust it to you. It was 13 years earlier because I wrote Chasing Francis in 2006. Wow. I must have been helping someone else and not paying attention to you. Yeah, I obviously didn't have <laughs> <No>. any needs. <laughs> no. well, yeah. Wow. No, I know. Crazy, ago. right? Yeah. So here's what's interesting uh, for me. Before we started recording, I just said to you, you know, I've, I've been around you a good number of years. Mm -hmm. And I know you're a two. There's no question you're a two. Right. 
But you have a very four like um, quality as well. And I just, we just heard you kind of give voice to it. You know, mm. this idea of you're so good at moving into dark spaces with people, which is very fourish. Mm. You know, fours have this ability to help walk people into those thin, dark spaces mm. that they either, places they don't want to go or they don't want to even acknowledge exist. Mm. Right? The four is really good at writing a song or doing something. Like we had Andrew Peterson on mm-hmm. uh, like two weeks ago. And, and, you know, who does that better than Andrew? I mean, yeah. in three and a half minutes in a song, right. you know, come with me. Let me walk you into your sorrow, you know, and and, <laughs> and let yes. you know that at the end of this, you're still going to be alive. Yeah. And, but I've mm. sobbed through most many of his songs. I know. Yes. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Right. So I wonder, you know, twos and fours share a line mm-hmm. on the Enneagram. And when a two's in a uh, a really good space, they, they, they tend to look and act like healthy for mm-hmm. and so what i was wondering as you were describing that is, is boy am i watching uh a, a, a listening right now to a two who is so evolved that they are hard for me to tell the difference between them and a healthy four mm. in, a, in a way you know because a couple of moments when you were talking about you know how important it is to move into mourning and stuff i i have this attunement thing in me i know when something falls on a room I know when a silence hits a room not to move, mm-hmm. right? And there were two or three times when you were talking, I was like, don't move. Mm. It's a very important idea. And it's, it's being spoken with so much authority. Mm. This notion of, and for a two, to not get all busy yeah. and happy and chirpy, mm-hmm. but to allow someone to move into suffering with them, mm. pretty powerful, pretty powerful and really deeply moving to hear you talk about it huh it's something i would never have talked about in my 20s huh i would have avoided it hmm. i would avoid i would have avoided me now hmm. because i wouldn't have wanted to go there wouldn't have thought it was necessary and was frankly frightened of it. Did you just say what I think you said? Did you just say, in my 20s, I would have avoided me? Yes, avoided me, the 65-year-old. Therapist. Yeah. (laughs) Oh. (laughs) Well, here we go. Oh, the 20-year-old me would have avoided the 20-year-old me would have avoided me now. Yes. Oh, totally. And I would say the 20-year-old knew that something was wrong. Mm. But was terrified to go for help. Mm. Terrified. Yeah. So, yeah. So, <laughs> all right. So, your 20-year-old, Al Andrews, is here in the room. Or mm-hmm. another 25-year-old, too, just trying to find their way in the world. And they, they come to you and they say, Al, can you save me some time? Hmm. What would you do? What would you tell me to save me some time and heartache? I'm like, what would you just tell me to do? Well, you know, um, I'm not sure which book this this was in, 
But uh, when Richard Rohr talks about the ascent and the descent, right? Um, I, at, at that time, oh gosh, a few years ago, I was leading a a group, maybe ten years ago, of of folks who were in their early twenties, and I began talking about some of these things, like let's go to places of sorrow, and um, it just didn't work. Mm-hmm. And then I I heard or read Aurora saying something like, "Your job with a twenty year old is not to draw them." into the ascent, to, to the descent, not to draw them into the place of sorrow, but just to let them know that it's coming. Because as a 20-year-old, the things that I dealt with in my 30s in counseling had already happened to me mm-hmm. and, and have happened to most 20-year-olds already. You know, by the time they're 20, the thing they're going to deal with in therapy in their 40s has already happened. Mm-hmm. But they're just not ready to go there. Mm-hmm. So I think the first thing I would say to the 20-year-old me, I still like having him in the room, um, would be, it's coming. It's coming. Uh, sorrow is coming. Because some things have happened to you, because they happen to everybody. A snake comes into everyone's garden early in their life and takes innocence away. And so that's already happened to you. And you're going to have to deal with it one day. And if you want to start edging toward it, I'd be glad to do that with you. But I would probably take some smaller steps with that person. I'm not sure exactly what they'd be to kind of warm them up to mm-hmm. the idea. I have met some 20-year-olds who are ready to go there, but others not. Mm. And so I think I would just say there's a day coming where you're going to have to look at some things, but it's not right now. And when you're ready, let's talk. Mm-hmm. Is that a blanket statement for everybody, or is it just a general truth? Maybe is a better way to put this. That that, and it's a great way for us to maybe kind of put a, a period on the end of the sentence of this conversation. That this is going to sound very, you know, Eorish, maybe or draconian, or whatever you want to say, right? But the fact of the matter is, regardless of your type, um, for each of us. A time of sorrow comes. Mm-hmm. It is a great mistake to um, refuse its invitation. In, ref- in refusing the invitation to mourn, to have sorrow, your soul will revolt if you refuse that invitation. And, it, and that, rev- that revolt may come in the form of depression, anxiety, um, feelings of lost no sense of identity you know run off and have an affair go start an addiction whatever it is your soul will tell you you need to allow this suffering uh, to face this suffering and i think for every type 
that's something that's just a general human truth. Yes, I would I would say that is a universal truth, and you could put a period in, into that. Yeah, but there's hope in it. Absolutely. Yeah. Because facing it does bring comfort. Yeah. And healing. Well, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. <laughs> Whoever you are listening. That's right. We uh, we for sure need to look at the 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 brokenness of our type, of our mm-hmm. manner of being in the world, face mm-hmm. the sorrow of yeah. what it's done to us and others. Mm. Embrace that which is most beautiful about who we are and uh, absolutely and also embrace what's most broken mm-hmm. yeah about who we are well I could talk to you forever right? we could sit around here doing this all afternoon just... <laughs> we could we sure could it's so good man I'm so honored you came on and gave gave some voice and language to what it looks like to be a, a healthy wise Enneagram too. well that's very kind of you to say and it's been a pleasure being here really has been well, Typology Tribe, once again, please don't forget the words of the great Oscar Wilde. Be yourself. Everybody else is already taken. <laughs>